This is Just a Few Questions from Chicago. I'm your host, Mark Sims, and I have Stephen Hurley on the line. Stephen Hurley is an education activist in Canada. It's a a pleasure to talk to somebody from Canada. How are you doing, Mr. Hurley? You don't have to call me Mr. It's Stephen. Uh, I am great. It's great to connect with you, Mark. No, it's, I was looking at your stuff, and uh, I just want, just want to ask you, is the Canadian education system anything like the education system here in the States? Are the students being prepared in Canada for the jobs of the future, or are oh. it's just you just have, we just have a hot mess here in the States where basically your zip code predicts most students' future? So what's the education uh, system like in Canada? Well, you know, it's interesting you frame it that way because we like to talk about jobs of the future and depending on what industry you're in, if you're in the tech industry, then you're talking about, you know, coding jobs and, uh, you know, the knowledge workers. And if you're in the arts, then you're talking about cultural workers and uh, the jobs of the future. I think we are preparing kids for the jobs of the future. I think we're preparing kids and those kids will lean into the future that, uh, that is out there for them. You asked a, a second question about about uh, zip code. I think here in Canada we have some of the same issues with uh, socioeconomic impact of education prospects. So if you are born into wealth, you're going to do well. I mean that's that's a given. If you're born into a family, you know where parents uh, ha- are working three and four jobs to make ends meet that's going to affect the way that you do and not only the way how you do in the system, but how the system sees you. And so we, yes, we have the same problems that you do. Yours are a little more, well, let's say larger than life. You have a population that's 10 times the size, 10 times the size of Canada. And so your problems are going to be larger. And there are some other issues in terms of the way that, uh, that your government handles education. Uh, you know, we can talk a little bit about that if you'd like. You can. So is the is the education system in Canada, is it based off your zip code? Because if you live in a wealthy uh, part of town, or really wealthy suburb, a wealthy, uh, wealthy town, then you have a lot of resources. And you, if you live in a poor town, you don't have those resources. Is it like that in Canada? No, it's, it's not anymore. The province that I live in, Ontario, uh, in about 1997-1998, did away with uh, the local taxation going directly to the local school district. They centralized everything, realizing that the tax base in some smaller communities uh, is going to be different than the tax base in larger metropolises, and that uh, the tax, uh, the tax, it's not that the tax system wasn't fair, but it wasn't equally distributed. So. The government in 1997 decided to centralize all that, bring everything into the central government, and then distribute it evenly according to a a funding formula, which is flawed, but it's still a funding formula that is fairly equitable. Now, that said, um, that government funding for public education, I'm talking about public education, uh, is not adequate. And so we have communities uh, where parents uh, feel the pressure to hold pizza days and uh, food days, uh, dance-a-thons, in order to raise money to supplement the system. Now, that's where you get into some inequity, because communities where uh, 
a parent's uh, group may be able to raise $75,000, a year, different than a community group, a parent group that's able to raise $5,000 a year. And so that's where you get some of the inequities. And we have a lot of conversation about that. And a lot of conversation about the fact that parents feel they need to run pizza days in order to supplement uh, school funding. It's sort of like that in Chicago. You know, if you're in a wealthy part of town of Chicago and those parents are six-figure, maybe seven-figure parents, maybe, you know, high six-figure parents, they can raise money out of their pocket for that school. So, and of course, if you're in the lower end of town, a lower income part of town, well, we don't have that kind of money. So I, I understand that. Uh, similar here in Chicago. I like to talk, I'm not a, a, a um, computer expert, not at all. I, I fail Fortran and Cobalt. <laughs> these languages 40 something years in high school i didn't understand none of it it was key punch cards and ones and zeros i, I would not I just okay bad. the thing about it is that with all this ai and all these algorithms i'm always I, and this may be uh i don't this, this may be too much but i'm going to ask the question anyway are the public schools in canada really trying to use ai and the algorithms to in, in, in a more efficient way because the money's not there use these new programs and new whatever to help the children who don't have a lot of resources and who struggle in school have those computers and the, and the AI teach them. If you understand what I'm trying to say. I think so. I, I, you know, this COVID-19 lockdown that we've had all around the world has really uh, revealed a lot of, of what people here are calling the fault lines and the inequities. And so, and this is a fear of mine that we're going to, turn to AI and turn to technology to fill that void, you know, that how the, the, the water rushes in to fill that space uh, uh, when the river comes down. Uh, and I think we need to step back from that. I think AI uh, certainly is part of our society. We live in a digital society. We are, we are mapped and tracked and, and uh, cajoled by AI tools. But I think we, here in Canada, we're having some interesting conversations about privacy and security and about how far we want AI to go in terms of our education. And maybe that's just me talking. Maybe that's my the aspirational Stephen Hurley saying, maybe we're going to step back and say, no, technology is not going to be the predominant primary source of education for our children. Maybe it's actually going to be a human being. Um, because I think there's a there's a humanity uh, to education that needs to be maintained, retained, and uh, protected. I don't know if that answers your question. No, no, you know because because I'm trying because you know I don't have that question really down pat. I ain't gonna lie to you. I'm still hashing out in my brain because you know the classroom in Chicago. What I don't, uh, it was like that when I was a kid in the '70s, and you know my children went to school in the 2000s. You have a teacher with, you know, you got 35 students. Some classes, they may have 40 and 50 in some of this, some parts of Chicago. It's not that one teacher can't do it all. And I'm not saying the computer do it all. So how do we how do we mesh the two? We need human beings and we have a lot of computer programs and, and all this other stuff coming. No one should be struggling in school. That's that's my big thing. How, who's, how are you going to struggle in school? when We have all these computers. And all this wisdom right. and all this knowledge. How do we? How do we get there? I don't know how to get there, but we should try to get there. Well, I agree with you. I agree with you, Mark. And and one of the things that this situation has uh, has really brought up this current COVID nineteen situation, where we're trying to decide how we're going to go back to school. 
And uh, I have a meeting with a, a school superintendent on Monday morning. And uh, one of the things that I want to say to them is we have a community here that surrounds our schools. And this community is full of resources. It's full of people who know stuff, who have wisdom, who have skills, who have the ability to teach. They may not be qualified teachers, but how in this emergency situation, and maybe even moving forward, do we leverage that knowledge and that wisdom and allow that to, uh, to feed into our schools? So for, I'll give you a quick example. Uh, our, if our kids are going in September going to be part-time in physical school buildings and part-time at home, why can't we create teams, community teams, where maybe on a Tuesday afternoon, a group of kids will log into a local retirement home and talk to some of the people there and talk to interview them or talk to them about uh, their lives, their stories. Why can't we leverage that resource? Because those people are sitting there just as isolated and just as lonely as my kids are going to be sitting at the kitchen table. So I don't think we've, I don't think we've leveraged our imaginations enough. I think we're still set in this um, either in school or at home. And there's, we haven't explored the in-between enough. And I think there's a lot of work and a lot of value in exploring that in-between. Yeah. Uh, uh, Mr. Hurley, I don't think, uh, I don't know if Canada has teacher unions like we have here. I'm not here to beat up on the teachers union. People freak out. But I don't think the teachers unions here in the States are really for any real education innovation because they always think that education innovation means you're going to cut the teacher's pay. You're going to cut the teacher's, you know. I mean, what I'm trying to say, how are you going to get this in? You have to have some kind of innovation. Like you said, you've never been to the city of Chicago. I've been to Toronto a few times. And and there, we're not that far. We're only like 500 miles. So a student should learn about Chicago, all the Chicago, the parts of the far, far south side where I live. And it's not all criminals and ghettos. We're very nice people here. But it's a lot to learn outside of that rigid, boring curriculum. they still shoving down most students' Pie hole, you know what I'm saying? Well, you know, one of the, and I was talking to the head of one of our major teacher unions here in Ontario this week, and they believe, and I guess rightly so, that if, if you have a trained teacher uh, in front of every child, that's going to be the best form of education. Um, but I think we do need to open up and spread our wings a little bit and give, us, give ourselves a little more elbow room. Uh, and, you know, in 1945, after World War II, there was a town in Italy, Reggio Emilia, who asked themselves as, as townspeople, what do we do with our kids? What do we do with our kids after this devastating war? How do we do education differently? And they came up with what is known worldwide now as a system of education or an approach to education called Reggio Emilia. And it is used in early childhood education all around the world. It's child-centered, it's creative, it's innovative. Um, and so why in this crisis in 2020, can't we be doing the same thing, asking those same questions about what are we going to do with our children and really being creative? I don't think we're, we're at that stage yet. I'm going to go, start babbling and then I'm going to have you wrap up the show. Uh, what's the gentleman who had to, uh, Sir Ken Robinson, right? You, you, you got it out of yes. your brain. Sir, he did the famous TED Talk back in the day. Well, not that long ago, but at least 10 years ago. 
And uh, I like Sir Ken, never met the man. Sir Ken Robinson said in one of his books or many, many times, he said, uh, uh, students or children, whatever, children, students, they like learning. What they have a problem with, what they don't like, not all, but people like me back in the day, we don't like school or we didn't like school. So how do we have some education innovation where pe- no matter whatever the socioeconomic challenge is, whatever that child or that student, they like school. They love learning and they like school. How do we get that? I hate to, ha- I don't hate to feel that any child hates school because I've been there. It's painful. So, so I think, and I know you, I know you're short on time, but I think this time has allowed us to see and witness and observe our children in their natural habitat. We have observed what they do when they're not in school because they, here in Ontario, they haven't been officially in school since March. But I have witnessed my own children learning without me uh, an amazing thing, whether it's music, whether it's learning to play chess, I have witnessed them in their natural habitat. I think we need to take that learning back to our conversations about what school is going to look like moving forward. I can, I can talk about this, this uh, subject forever. Self-directed learning. There's all kind of stuff out there. There's all kind of stuff. Stephen Hurley, it's been a pleasure. I don't think I can, I'm not supposed to go to Canada. I've been locked out since I'm an uh, American citizen, right? I can't come see you, right? <laughs> At but, some point. But, but, but when the restrictions are lifted, uh, we'll we'll have a meal together. Or definitely uh, we'll do this vicarious thing. I got to learn how to do Zoom. You know what I'm saying? I got to do some self-directed learning and learn Zoom and this video, all these other. It's more, more than Zoom. A lot of video conferences out there. Can I have you back later on this year? I would love it. Stephen Hurley, it's been a pleasure. Thanks, Mark.